Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R4, Dwelling of the Lions. Well, it was just a big lump, wasn't it? Just another huge mound, like hundreds, maybe thousands of others, scattered all across the Near East. And yet the locals were absolutely certain that this particular mound held the remains of ancient Nineveh. They even told a tale of an immense slab, the height of two men and covered with detailed reliefs, dug up by local villagers a few years earlier. Where was it now? Well, of course everyone in the village had wanted a souvenir, so the slab had quickly been cut up into tiny pieces. I guess it's fitting that Shelley's Ozymandias had just been published the year before. By 1820, Claudius James Rich had been traveling across Mesopotamia on and off for a dozen years. From his base in Baghdad, where he was resident for the East India Company, he'd spent over a decade carefully studying and documenting the geography, history, and relics of the region. In 1811, Richard made an excursion to Babylon, another evocative mound covered by long centuries of dust and sand, and done his best to map the site. This time, his tour was far more extensive, from Baghdad north to Sulaymaniyah, then east to Sinna, and finally west to Mosul, the closest modern city to the supposed site of Nineveh. Along the way, he'd kept an eye out for interesting antiquities and purchased or collected as many as he could. After obtaining a few small reliefs from the area of Nineveh, Rich sailed back down the Tigris to Baghdad. Later that year, he traveled to the Persian city of Shiraz and made the customary pilgrimage to the well-preserved ruins of Persepolis. 55 years after Niebuhr, and 13 years before Rawlinson. In 1821, still in Shiraz, Rich was suddenly struck down by cholera and died, at the very young age of 34. Claudius James Rich's legacy was important in several respects. 
First off, the artifacts he'd obtained during his many travels were gifted to the British Museum, forming the nucleus of its Mesopotamian collection. Secondly, Rich's widow published two accounts he'd written on his Mesopotamian travels, titled Narrative of a Journey to the Site of Babylon in 1811 and Narrative of a Residence in Kurdistan and on the Site of Ancient Nineveh. The year of publication was 1836, the same critical year that Rawlinson was staring up at Behistun, and Lassen and Bernouf were deciphering Old Persian cuneiform. Among those who eagerly devoured Rich's books was the noted Orientalist Julius von Mohl. A respected German professor now living in Paris, von Mohl was responsible for preparing a yearly report for the French Asiatic Society. These reports were basically a synopsis of all advancements and discoveries in the field of Near Eastern studies made during that year. In 1840, the first year he generated such a report, von Mohl was contacted by a man who'd soon take the position of French consul in Mosul, Paul-Emile Botta. As mentioned last episode, at 38 years old, Botta had already collected a lifetime of experiences. With a voyage around the world and separate travels through Egypt and Yemen already under his belt, Boda had contacted von Mohl to get a better understanding of the history and culture of the Ottoman Near East. Von Mohl was happy to inform Boda that Mosul was a region of incredible historical importance, not the least of which was, supposedly, the ancient city of Nineveh. Von Mohl encouraged Boda to collect as many antiquities as he could— but he also passed along a far more novel, even radical, notion. Why don't you try, you know, digging into the ground and see if you can, you know, find out what's actually buried there? Whoa, hold up, let's just, wow, that is way out of line. I mean, was Von Mole from Mars, or worse, like England or something? Where could he have come up with such an absolutely insane idea? Okay, sorry for going overboard, but the point I'm trying to make here is that no one had ever considered doing what von Mohl was proposing. Certainly not in the Near East. I mean, if you heard there was some treasure buried somewhere, sure, you'd dig for it. And if your foot bumped up against an interesting-looking statue, you might grab some buddies and dig it up to put on your patio. But the idea of digging into the ground, not really knowing what was there, on the hopes that you just might come across something scientifically interesting? No matter how logical an approach that seems to us today, it was almost unheard of in the early 19th century. During the 18th century, excavations had been carried out at the buried Roman cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum, but the Italian digs were mainly designed to bolster the art collection of a young queen, and also helped along by the early discovery of gold coins. The purely scientific exploration of ancient buried sites didn't even really have a name yet. Of course, it would soon get one, archaeology. After some delay, Boda arrived at Mosul in early 1842. 
His personable manner and fluency in local languages made him popular with the city's residents, and also helped his antiquarian activities. Over much of the next year, Bodo focused on collecting whatever relics were floating around the local market. He even went door-to-door in neighboring villages to see if the locals had any interesting finds to sell him. But Boda quickly learned that Claudius James Rich had already snatched up most of the notable finds, and the remaining pickings were both slim and unsatisfying. Even when he obtained something of interest, the seller rarely had any idea either what it was or where it had originally come from. In December 1842, Boda was finally ready to give science a try. Nineveh was supposedly buried under a mound called Koyunjik, roughly a mile long, a quarter mile wide, and rising 90 feet above the surrounding plain. Recruiting some local workmen, Boda headed out to the mound and started digging a few trenches. After six weeks of painstaking work, funded out of his own pocket, all Boda had to show for his efforts were a few inscribed bricks and other trinkets. One day, a farmer came up to him and basically said, Hey, it's none of my business, but if you're really looking for awesome, cool, inscribed stone reliefs and stuff, where you should really be digging is my village of Korsabad, about 15 miles north, because that stuff is like all over. Boda was probably a bit dubious, but on the other hand, Kuyunjik wasn't really panning out, so what the hell. On March 20th, 1843, Boda sent a few men to start digging at Korsabad. Three days later, Kablam, or Kablui, or Bazinga, or whatever sound it makes when you find something really, really amazing. In this case, it was the top of a wall, which, as more dirt was removed, exposed a surface entirely covered with sculptured alabaster bas-reliefs. After another week of digging, Boda had at least some idea of what he'd found. The remains of a huge palace, with numerous chambers and connecting corridors, all the walls of which were lined with slabs, bearing reliefs of men, gods, strange creatures, great battles, and mysterious ceremonies. Alongside these reliefs were line after line of cuneiform inscriptions. In his diary, Boda expressed his astonishment. What can all this mean? Who built this structure? In what century did he live? To what nation did he belong? Are these walls telling me their tales of joy and woe? Is this beautiful cuneiformed character a language? I know not. I can read their glory and their victories and their figures, but their story, their age, their blood is to me a mystery. Their remains mark the fall of a glorious and brilliant past, but a past not known to a living man. Boda was certain of one thing. A find this remarkable just had to be the ancient city of Nineveh. In his excitement, he sent a dispatch to France in May of 1843, announcing his discovery. In this fact, he was wrong. What Boda had actually discovered was Dur-Sharukin, the royal palace of the great Neo-Assyrian king Sargon II. 
As you may recall from way back in episode 17, Sargon was the ruler responsible for the final destruction of the biblical state of Israel and the dispersal of its ten tribes. The rest of his 17-year reign was mainly occupied with warring across Assyria's frontiers against the Babylonians, Elamites, Egyptians, Neo-Hittites, and Manaeans. His invasion of the Armenian kingdom of Urartu and defeat of its king, Rusa I, was shown in great detail in the reliefs of his palace. In fact, it was his plunder of the Urartian religious capital of Musasir in 714 BC that funded the construction of Dur-Sharukin, the fortress of Sargon. The great king had eventually fallen in conflict with the Sumerians, the first Neo-Assyrian ruler to die in battle. But his Sargonid ruling dynasty, including Sennacherib, Esarhaddon, and Ashurbanipal, would rule up through the very end of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Of course, all this history would remain hidden until cuneiform could be deciphered. But the Assyrians themselves were known. Herodotus used the terms Assyria, Syria, and Babylonia almost interchangeably, and talked about the Assyrian seat of government moving to Babylon after Nineveh's destruction. Assyria was also known through a number of Old Testament passages. Nineveh is mentioned as early as the book of Genesis, but the majority of the Assyrian mentions are in Isaiah and 2 Kings, and deal with Hezekiah's conflict with the Assyrian king Sennacherib, the son of Sargon II. Herodotus also mentions the same conflict, albeit from an Egyptian perspective. Some Bible passages also reference the earlier Levantine campaigns of both Tiglath-Pileser III and his son Shalmaneser V, the immediate predecessors of Sargon II, which meant that Without fully realizing it, Boda had uncovered the first hard evidence that could be directly correlated with both the writings of Herodotus and biblical texts, which, to say the least, was pretty major. But for now, even though the city he'd found wasn't Nineveh, he was correct in guessing that the civilization he'd found was ancient Assyria. Boda's discoveries electrified France, and Near Eastern scholarship in general. Realizing the potential for both knowledge and prestige, the French government began funding Boda's work, and even sent over the artist Eugène Flandin to document his discoveries. The need was urgent, as some reliefs had begun to disintegrate once exposed to the hot desert sun. Boda continued his Korsabat excavations until October 1844, when he concluded there wasn't much left to be found. The next challenge was transporting the reliefs, statues, and other finds 600 miles down the Tigris for shipment back to France. To Boda's horror, the first raft loaded with his discoveries overturned in the fast-moving current, and sculptures only recently recovered from oblivion sank out of sight forever. Boda took every precaution with his next shipment, and this time managed to deliver his finds safely to the southern port city of Basra. From there, both Boda and his discoveries would 
eventually, board an ocean-going transport for the long journey back to France. Boda had barely left the region before another young adventurer arrived in Mosul, with a spade on his shoulder and an eye for promising mounds. At 28 years old, Austin Henry Laird had also enjoyed a cosmopolitan upbringing. As an Englishman born in Paris and schooled in England, France, Italy, and Switzerland. At 16, he was hired to work in his uncle's law firm in London, a safe, steady job with plenty of long-term security. The problem was, Laird didn't have much interest in long-term security. He'd always craved adventure, and for as long as he could remember, it had been his dream to travel to the Near East. Not that Laird didn't give the serious life a serious try. In the end, he worked for his uncle for six long years. But in 1839, at the age of 22, he bid a fond farewell to his desk job and never looked back. While his decision was impulsive, he'd also spent time laying the practical groundwork for the life he wanted, studying history and literature, navigation and first aid, as well as Persian, Arabic, and other Near Eastern languages. Laird's initial plan was to travel to Ceylon, modern Sri Lanka, and obtain a civil service job to use as a base for exploring. But even this plan proved too restrictive, and Laird ended up spending the next several months traveling across Anatolia and Syria, with no base and no particular agenda. As he wrote in his diary, During the autumn of 1839 and winter of 1840, I've been wandering through Asia Minor and Syria, scarcely leaving untrod one spot hallowed by tradition, or unvisited one ruin consecrated by history. Laird purposely charted a route through previously unexplored lands, hoping to add to European knowledge of the region. Aware of the risk he was inviting, he purchased a double-barreled rifle and two double-barreled pistols for his protection. From Syria, Laird went on to Jerusalem and Petra before returning to Aleppo. In the spring of 1840, he finally made his way, by numerous and well-armed caravans, to Mosul, where he visited the mound of Koyunjik covering ancient Nineveh. Laird also made an outing to another local mound, a vast ruin along the Tigris about 50 miles below its junction with the Zab. The ancient city beneath this mound was also known to the local Arabs. It was named after a mighty biblical hunter, the great-grandson of Noah, who'd founded the first cities in the wake of the Great Flood. His name was Nimrod. Further along, the party came across another mound called Kala Shergat, which supposedly held the remains of the ancient city of Asher. Seriously, Nineveh, Nimrud, and Asher, all in one go. I mean, come on. To Laird, even his previous dreams of Near Eastern adventure now seemed pale by comparison. Like Rawlinson with Behistun, Laird had been completely hooked by the mysterious mounds of Mesopotamia. And even as he left the region, he knew he'd be back. 
His plan was still to travel to Ceylon, but growing friction between England and Persia now made the crossing problematic. Near Baghdad, Laird made an excursion to the ruins of Babylon. He then traveled south by caravan to Kermanshah, where he first saw the Behistun inscription. Unaware of Rawlinson's accomplishments from several years before, Laird also described the site as completely inaccessible. In late 1840, Laird finally obtained permission to travel to the remote Persian province of Luristan, ancient home of the Elamites, Kassites, and Persians. In addition to examining ancient ruins, Laird apparently turned up the volume on his life of adventure, ingratiating his way into a fearsome local tribe and even backing them in their rebellion against the Shah. By mid-1842, with money running out, Laird was forced to return to Istanbul to seek a little gainful employment. During a stopover in Mosul, Laird made the acquaintance of the newly installed French consul, Paul-Emile Boda. The two men walked together to the mound of Koyunjik, where Laird encouraged Boda to pursue his plans for excavating later in the year. Continuing on to Istanbul, Laird met the British ambassador, Sir Stratford Canning. The two men also hit it off, and Laird regaled the ambassador with stories of the ancient cities buried beneath the sands. Hearing of his recent travels through Anatolia, Canning employed Laird as a kind of roving agent, carrying out secret diplomatic missions in the region. In 1843, news of Boda's discoveries at Khorsabad broke across Europe and the Near East. Inspired by his friend's accomplishments, Laird's vague plans were finally given shape. Like Boda, he would excavate the mounds of Mosul, starting with the lesser-known and untouched site of Nimrud. In the meantime, Laird began an intense study of Semitic languages, hoping they'd help in translating the cuneiform inscriptions. In the fall of 1845, Canning finally loaned Laird enough money to begin a trial dig. In November, Laird bought passage on a riverboat and set out down the Tigris for Mosul. Since the local political situation had become dicey, Laird spread around the cover story that he was in the area on a hunting trip to track wild boar. A few days after his arrival, he rode out to the great mound of Nimrud. Quickly striking up a friendship with a local sheikh, Laird was able to hire tribesmen to assist him in his efforts. The very next day, they set to work. Within a few hours of digging, the work crew had already begun to uncover walls paneled with stone slabs inscribed in cuneiform. A few weeks later, they came across the first sculptured reliefs, and, over the following four months, they unearthed nearly the entire structure. Taken together, the dozens of sculptured rooms formed an elaborate palace complex, some 600 feet long and 360 feet wide. Though they knew the Arabic name of the place, Nimrud, they didn't know it for what it was the biblical city of Kala, or Kalhu, and the first great royal capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. 
The city had been built by the Middle Assyrian king Shalmaneser I in the mid-13th century BC. At the same time, the Assyrians were annexing the Hurrian kingdom of Mitanni and generally scaring the heck out of the neighboring Egyptians, Hittites, and Kassites. The military prowess of Shalmaneser's son, Tukulti-Ninurta I, may have even inspired the biblical legend of the warrior Nimrod. In 879 BC, the great Neo-Assyrian king Ashurnasirpal II moved the capital from Asher to Nimrud, a status the city would hold for the next 150 years. Unknown to Laird, many of the reliefs he'd uncovered showed Ashurnasirpal II off on campaign, lion hunting, or under the protection of mysterious winged spirits. The inscriptions, when later deciphered, were found to record the name and titles of the king, trace his lineage, relate his military victories, define the boundaries of his empire, and discuss the construction of his new royal palace. Perhaps Laird's most remarkable finds were 26 colossal statues of winged, human-headed bulls and lions, or Lamassu. In fact, the discovery of one giant Lamassu head made his workers think that they'd discovered the body of the great hunter Nimrod himself. Unfortunately, his workers weren't the only ones jumping to conclusions. Like Boda before him, Laird believed that a city this amazing just had to be Nineveh. The site's proper identification, as biblical Kala, would only come later. It was the summer of 1846 before Laird, working with Ambassador Canning in Istanbul, arranged his first shipment for transport back to England. While regulations on shipping items out of the region were fairly loose, having been designed to cover mining activities, the logistics alone were mind-boggling. First, there was the effort required to remove something the size of a giant stone lamassu out of the ground, which typically required digging an enormous trench and using the aid of dozens of workers and a few harnessed draft animals to pull the statue up along a makeshift ramp. Even properly loaded onto rafts, the antiquities still had to travel 600 miles downriver through lands frequented by bandits before reaching Basra, only to wait there for the next ocean-going ship that could carry them back to Europe. While all these difficulties had been shared by Boda, his Korsabad finds ended up sitting in Basra for almost a year. Nimrod presented Laird with one additional wrinkle— the sheer quantity of recovered finds easily overwhelmed the improvised transport system, and Laird soon realized he'd be lucky if he managed to transport even a fraction of his finds back to England. It was the classic instance of too much of a good thing, but Laird wasn't complaining. Ambassador Canning had finally secured direct British funding for Laird's work, which would now be conducted under the auspices of the British Museum. As usual, the money didn't come without strings attached. 
The museum dictated that, in addition to his current jobs of overseeing the excavations and arranging for the moving, packing, and transport of all finds, Laird now also had to make drawings of all sculptures, make copies and casts of all inscriptions, and rebury all items that couldn't be removed. In a nice piece of symmetry, Laird's greatest helper in these efforts turned out to be, who else, a native Assyrian. Hormuz Rassam was a native of Mosul, born to a Chaldean Catholic family. His father was archdeacon of the Assyrian Church of the East, while his older brother Christian served as British vice-consul in Mosul. Twenty years old at the time of Laird's excavations, Rassam had been hired as an overseer and paymaster for local workers. Laird was immediately impressed by Rassam's hard work and started taking him under his wing. During the fall of 1846, the two continued to make major finds at Nimrud. Probably the most significant discovery was a complete freestanding obelisk, with detailed reliefs on all four sides, accompanied by dozens of lines of cuneiform text. This was the famous Black Obelisk of Assyria, erected during the Great Civil War between the sons of Shalmaneser III. It also featured the first known depiction of a biblical figure, King Jehu of Israel, as well as the first known mention of the Parsua, or Persians. Of course, both these revelations would only come after the text was deciphered. After floating two more shipments down the Tigris, Laird finally stopped work at Nimrud in May 1847. With his grant money quickly evaporating, he decided to make one more stab at excavating Kuyunjik. The city he hoped to find, Nineveh, was one of the oldest in the world. It had been founded sometime during the 5th millennium BC, in a fertile area near a major crossing point of the Tigris. The city's main Ishtar temple had been erected in 2270 BC by the Akkadian king Manishtushu. During the Middle Assyrian period, Nineveh was used as a summer palace, but it wasn't until the reign of Sennacherib, son of Sargon II, that the city became the last great capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Using the experience he'd gained at Nimrud, Laird was able to employ a more targeted approach at Koyunjik, one that provided almost immediate results. Within days, he'd located the largest, most elaborate, and most famous of all Assyrian palaces, Sennacherib's Palace Without Rival. His initial finds included Lamassu, bas-reliefs of a siege, and what he described as several small oblong tablets of dark unbaked clay, having a cuneiform inscription over the sides. Unknown to Laird, this was only the first small hint of the enormous library still waiting to be found. But that was for another day. By June 1847, Laird's funds had finally run out, and he was forced to put his excavations on hold. Before heading back to England, in the company of his aide, Rassam, who planned to study at Oxford, he made sure to post a few guards and plant a big Beware of Lamassu sign in front of his dig sites. Laird had good reason for concern. 
Only the previous month, Boda's exhibition of the treasures from Korsabad had finally opened in the Louvre, in the presence of the French king, Louis-Philippe. The whole scholarly world was buzzing about the rediscovery of ancient Assyria, and Laird knew it wouldn't be long before others would come in search of Mesopotamia's buried past. Boda himself had already moved on, taking the position of French consul in Jerusalem. But his successor in Mosul was already making his own exploratory digs. Laird hoped to return soon, but exactly how to manage it was still a mystery. Among the many good friends he said his goodbyes to was the current British consul in Baghdad, a man who'd corresponded with Laird even before he'd begun digging at Nimrud, and who'd taken it upon himself to shepherd Laird's finds through Baghdad's busy port. The man's name was Henry Creswick Rawlinson, and his recent years had been very, very busy. We'll catch up with him next time on The Ancient World Rediscovery.